I've got a relative that uh, had a rather bizarre medical condition that caused these strange lapses in his memory. I'll give you an example of what I mean. He would leave for work sometimes on a Monday morning and then come home in the evening on Wednesday to a, f a frightened and irate wife and would swear to her that he had just left for work that morning and have, would have no recollection of where he had been. Well, it was eventually diagnosed and successfully treated. Um, but before it was, there were a number of bizarre episodes like that. Now, this was back in the 1970s before GPS and cell phones and uh, personal computers and all of those things. He was a salesman and he had most of his um, uh, clients, most of, uh, of the people that he would sell to in Hoboken, New Jersey. And uh, one day he was driving to see some clients and he reported that he'd become overwhelmed with, uh, with fatigue. And so he pulled over to the side of the road and he went to sleep uh, for a, you know, a little power nap got up and continued on his way, drove into the city. But as he came in, things didn't look familiar to him. And, um, and, and he thought, well, maybe, maybe I got turned around, took a different road in. But as he looked around, he couldn't find the roads that he normally found, couldn't find the businesses. And he began to stop and ask people at gas stations, convenience stores, where is such and such a place? Never heard of it. Where's such and such a street? Never heard of it. Or sometimes they would tell him the street, but when he got there, it wasn't at all what he was expecting or it was a business and it was the same name, but it was different. And finally, being really exasperated, he said, uh, he said finally to one fellow that he stopped at a gas station, he was talking to him and he said, I, I, don't, I don't understand it. He said, for five years, I've been coming to Hoboken for these clients. I don't understand how I could get so turned around in the... Guy looked at him, he said, Hoboken, buddy, you're in Cincinnati. And it was then that he realized that he needed to see a doctor. It's uh, really disconcerting to not know where you are. Maybe that's happened to some of you. Maybe, maybe you've been away at a hotel someplace and you've slept deeply. And when you've woken up in the, in the dim light, you can tell that things aren't where they're supposed to be. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and for a moment you have, well, it could be anything from confusion to panic. What's going on? Where am I? Since the 1980s, that has been the condition of much of the evangelical church in America. They thought that they were living in one place. They were actually living in another and if you've looked at the culture around you over the last half dozen years, say, and you've been alarmed, distressed, confused, anxious, angry maybe even because you felt like something is wrong, well, you're right. But what's wrong is not perhaps what you thought. What's wrong, perhaps, is that you thought that you were living in one place. You're really living in quite another. So many evangelicals thought that where we were living was in Jerusalem, in a Christian society where God's laws were the norm. 
And, and even those who didn't abide by those norms, they all knew and recognized that these are the norms. And when there was a drift from those norms in the society, the, the church had the prophetic task of bringing the people and the society back, just like the prophets did in Jerusalem and Judea, to bring the people back. We wanted something so badly to be that we ignored what the Bible said. There certainly were precursors to it. There have been throughout history, going back a long time. But in the experience of all you who are living today, this is the legacy of the 1980s. And American evangelicals adopted a name it, claim it, and manifest it theology. They may not have called it that. But God was their mascot. And they twisted his word to make it appear to support his agenda or their agenda. But here's the funny thing. You know, the Bible tells us that what we sow will reap. And the evangelical church today is in what is suffering is, is reaping its unfaithfulness. The New Testament couldn't be clearer we do not live in Jerusalem. We live in exile, in a land that is not our own, a land in which we are strangers and aliens. We always have and we always will until Christ returns. It is a land that abides by a different set of rules and laws and a land that worships other gods. And the church's attempts in many ways very self-seeking to mold the world into a passable counterfeit of the kingdom not of this world has led only to the compromise and the corruption of the church. In the high days of dominion theology and the moral majority, if the church influenced the world at all, it came at the expense of the culture influencing the church far more. As Ligonier theologian Stephen Nichols has pointed out, the church cast its lot in with the politics and parties of this world in an attempt to influence them, but the church was far more influenced by them. And you need only look at the YouTube stars followed by myriads of evangelical Christians to see the fleshing out of Jesus' statement where the corpses are there, the vultures will gather. We don't live in Jerusalem. We live in exile. We live in Sodom. We live in Egypt. We live in Canaan. We live in Babylon. What does that mean for us? How should we live? What should we expect? Where do we fit? What should we be doing? Numerous passages in the New Testament address these questions for us. Statements by Jesus in the Gospels. Instances in the book of Acts. Paul uh, touches on these things in the book of Romans and in his letters to the Corinthians. The author to the Hebrews, James, Jude, 
um, and John in the book of Revelation, all of these touch on these issues, but God's given us one entire book dedicated to telling us where we live and how we should live here. It's Peter's first letter. And today, by God's grace, we'll begin to look at it. I'm going to read to you the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Our Father, as we come into your presence today by your word, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be among us and would fill us. That, Father, the end to which you have chosen us, obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood would be ours. And that you would indeed multiply grace and peace to us through Christ our Lord. Amen. For any book of the Bible to be meaningful to us, we need to understand its setting. If we don't know its setting, we treat it simply as a wax nose that we can twist into whatever meaning we'd like for it to be. And in the opening verses of his first letter, Peter gives us a setting. And through it, he tells us where we are, he tells us who we are, and he tells us what ought to characterize our lives while we're here. Where are we? Well, the first thing you need to notice is that we are exiles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered. That, that Greek word that is translated strangers here, and your translation might say exiles, means, and I read from one of the Greek lexica, compelled to reside temporarily in a foreign place that is not one's home. That's the state of Christians. It's the state of the church. Compelled to live temporarily in a foreign place that is not our home. And the New Testament gives three main metaphors uh, for that. It speaks about Abraham uh, living in Canaan before they went into Egypt. It speaks about Israel in Egypt. And it speaks about Israel in captivity in Babylon. Now of the three of those, the Babylonian captivity is by far the most dominant theme. But all of them are employed. And it will be good for us to consider all three because doing so will correct the common mistakes that we all have to twist the scriptures, to press them into our own earthly comforts. So the scriptures tell us that we're living in Canaan. In Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 10 the writer says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. 
By faith, he made his home in a promised land, a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And there was a promise to Abraham of the land, but as the Son of God comes into the world, and as he speaks to us, we soon realize that the land is not just some uh, narrow strip of geography upon the Mediterranean Sea, but it's the entire earth. And so Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That word meek means gentle, humble, unassuming, yielding. I just want to stop for a moment and ask you, if you think about uh, people outside the church, people who are, uh, has, whose only citizenship is this world in which we live, is that how they view the church? They look at the church and they say, ah, oh, now there is an institution. There are people who are gentle, humble, unassuming, and yielding. You've twisted Jesus' words. If not in speaking them, at least in what they think, that what Jesus really meant is that the forceful and the angry will conquer the earth. And as we will see later in Peter's letter, that when the church does that, we can expect God to withdraw his blessing and protection from us. The meek will inherit the earth. Inherit the earth, not conquer it. The New Jerusalem, John tells us in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, will descend from heaven. It will not be built by our hands. And when Christians are faithful, we live out our time here as strangers and aliens, waiting as Abraham did for a city with lasting foundations whose architect and builder is God. Note not that God designs it. He's the architect. And then he says, here are the plans. You build it. It descends to us from heaven at the Lord's return. We don't build it and present it to him. Now, if you've been influenced by the dominant culture, no doubt a statement like that raises questions for you. I can only tell you that to learn the, what the Bible says about this, you're going to have to unlearn a lot of the false ideas that you've gotten from YouTube. We live in Canaan. And the Bible uses the example of Egypt. Now, thankfully, oftentimes when it does, the metaphor of Egypt is having been delivered out of Egypt. But we shouldn't be so excited yet. In Jude's letter, in verse 5, he says, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. The, the good news is this, that when it comes to the metaphor of Egypt, the New Testament represents us as ha of having been delivered from 
Egypt, the part that we miss is that we're not yet to the promised land. We are strangers and aliens wandering in the wilderness. By far the most dominant New Testament metaphor for our current situation is living in exile in Babylon. And there are too many instances of that to cite. But when the false prophets told the exiles in Babylon, hey, don't worry about it. This isn't going to last long. This is going to be a flash in the pan. Everything's going to be great. You're going to be great again. Don't worry about it. God told Jeremiah to write a letter to the exiles. It's in Jeremiah 29, and I'll read it to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. But you know, what Jeremiah writes, we see lived out in the life of Daniel. You can read about it in the book that bears his name. And so Daniel sought to be a blessing to Babylon where he lived. But Daniel never forgot that his citizenship was from another place, that his loyalty was to another kingdom. He never confused Babylon with Jerusalem, didn't expect Babylon to become Jerusalem, didn't try to make Babylon Jerusalem. And so as we read about Daniel while he's there, what do we see Daniel not doing? We don't see him decrying the worship of Marduk, the god of Babylon. We don't see Daniel trying to institute Mosaic law in Babylon. Daniel meekly serves Babylon and its welfare, but his citizenship was not there and there are lines that he cannot cross. So when King Darius signed a, a decree that no one was to pray to any god but Darius for 30 days, Daniel didn't start a protest. He didn't tell the Babylonians they should rebel. He simply went home and did what God required him to do, to pray, regardless of what the cost for that might be. Peter tells us that God has placed us in exile. To God's elect strangers or exiles in the world scattered among the nations. Jesus had said that his disciples were not of the world, but in that same prayer in John 17, where he said that we're not of the world, he prayed that we not be taken out of the world. 
He's got a purpose for us here. It's a purpose that, at least in the last 40 years, American evangelicals have largely ignored pursuing their own agendas. In Revelation chapter 5, we're told that the blood of Jesus has purchased people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation on the earth. That his followers would permeate the nations of the world like leaven through dough. We'll see later in Peter's le uh, letter that, that there can never be such a thing as a Christian nation. It's impossible for there to be any such thing as a Christian nation. The holy nation is the church of Jesus Christ. And it's a nation that, that, that infuses and that spans geopolitical boundaries that make Christ's people distinct from their neighbors, from the world they live in, or they're not really Christians. In the letter in Jeremiah 29, God said to them, I have sent you into exile. And like Israel in her captivity, God has placed us in exile now, but with a difference. Israel's exile was a judgment upon her. But the exile that the church is in now is not a judgment on the church, but it's for the blessing of the world. Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, speaks about uh, the sufferings of the church. And he asks there, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give to us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, but in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what we often don't pay attention to in what Paul says here is that when he says, as it is written, he's quoting from Psalm 44. For your sake, we've been put to death all day long. Why is that significant? Because if you read Psalm 44, Psalm 44 is a psalm that uh, many biblical scholars believe was written for the captivity. It's a psalm of complaint. Why have you abandoned us? Why have you withdrawn from us? And the psalmist writes, but 
Now you have rejected us and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. We have been scattered among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations and people shake their heads at us. And Paul says that the church is now in that same objective situation as was Israel. And yet what Paul says is that in our case, it's no proof of God's abandonment of us. He's given his son. That's the proof. It doesn't matter whether there's persecution or famine or nakedness or sword. The point that Peter makes is this, that God has put us in this condition, not as a judgment on the church, but for the blessing and the salvation of those in whose land we now live. We can't faithfully carry out what God has given us to do if we don't understand where we live. And we must also understand who we are. So Peter says here that we are God's elect, his chosen people. Now that term was used in the Old Testament to uh, refer to the people of Israel. But Peter now takes it and he applies it to the church. And the church, you know, if you look at the, the unfolding of the redemptive story, is not an entity that's distinct or different from Israel, but the church is the expansion of the fullness of Israel made up of those who are being redeemed, uh, all of those of, of any background or nationality or heritage who place their faith in Jesus. The promised blessing of Abraham in the gospel has come to all nations. That's the promise that was made. That in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But, but Peter says more, not merely that we're elect, but that we are elect exiles. Chosen as exiles, scattered and all of it according to the foreknowledge, the predetermination of God the Father. That is, the choosing, the exile, the scattering is all of God's predetermination and it all has a purpose. And the purpose is our sanctification. Peter's going to talk about how God will do that in the life of his church. But, you know, Paul says... In uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, a passage that we read and skip over, or if we, 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 we take it at all, uh, uh, take note of it at all, just sort of read it as a cliche, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. And, and it's very interesting that the word that Paul uses there means to be given as a gift. It's been given to you as a gift to believe in Christ and it's been given to you as a gift to suffer for his sake. And I would imagine that most people would say, uh, no thank you, I'd like to return that gift. When I was in seminary a long time ago, I remember reading a Puritan author, please don't ask me which one, it was a very long time ago and I read a number of them 
But, but what he wrote struck me, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It's not an exact quote, but he wrote uh, that he'd never met anyone uh, that was truly holy who had not gone through significant suffering and who had learned in that suffering to submit himself to the will of God thankfully and cheerfully. We want the crown without the cross. Or we'll take the cross of our choosing, but we want none of what uh, Jesus said to Peter at the end of John's gospel, when you're older, you'll stretch out your hands and you'll be led places you don't want to go. But Jesus told us that if we would follow him, we must take up the cross. You understand what he meant by that, right? You understand that he meant embrace death. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood that. He wrote, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Or like Abraham. Living as strangers and aliens in a land not our own. Abraham did own some land. He owned his grave. And the only land that you and I as believers in Jesus have dominion over in this age is our graves. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 that we must be sharers in his suffering if we are ever to hope to have a share in his glory. That, that suffering is not for a time. It's not until we get these certain people out of office. It's not until things get better. That suffering is until Christ returns. The choosing, the election is unto obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And Peter is going to flesh out in the rest of this letter what that blood-sprinkled, obedient life looks like. If we can cast off the culture that's been foisted upon us by American evangelicalism and return to the Bible, if we can learn from it where we live and who we are, will be in a position to understand its teaching on what must characterize our lives. And Peter here prays for a multiplication of two things, for grace and peace. Beginning certainly with God's grace and peace to us, and then those things being worked out through us. Prays for a, multipli a multiplication of grace. You know, while many people speak about grace, few people really want to rely upon grace. I heard some time ago a pastor of a, of a, of a large church lament, and he was confessing. He said, he said we, want to have, um, we want to have enough faith in the grace of God so we can get ourselves to a place where we don't have to rely on grace or faith anymore. It's only in our weakness 
that we discover the sufficiency of God's grace. As one commentator put it, the story of the church is not a story of strength to strength, but it's a story of death to resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the weak things to shame the strong. And he said in his second letter to the Corinthians, for the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let let me stop and ask if that's the attitude that is being um, encouraged by American evangelical evangelicalism today. I'm content with weakness, content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, content with calamities because I know that when I'm weak, I'm strong. Praise for the multiplication of grace and for the multiplication of peace. Because as Paul says, In Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we do, we are able to extend peace to others. To turn the other cheek when struck. To be able to return blessing for insult, as Peter will later tell us to do. And we are able, and as far as it depends upon us, to live at peace with everyone. They may persecute, but we may not respond in kind. And as we live as peacemakers, Jesus pronounces us blessed, saying that we will be called the sons of God. Knowing where we live and who we are sets our expectations for how to live. And the, and, and the church in the lifetime of everyone who is here has done a poor job of recognizing where we live. We're not in Jerusalem. And pretending that we have been has led only to the corruption of the church. D.A. Carson recently wrote about our situation. He said this, instead of whining and feeling sorry for ourselves, Christians should align their vision with the most mature first century Christians. If opposition ever mounts to a place where it can rightly be called persecution, then we are called to follow the apostles who, quote, went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. And Carson continues the cliches of our faith, those things which we say that come glibly off our tongues, but we don't really mean. The cliches of our faith will take on new and life-changing significance. What it means to live with the hope of glory shaping our priorities what it means to show respect for all, whether Nero in the first century or the local imam in ours. What it means to declare God's glory to the nations. It was very disconcerting for my relative to come to the realization that he was in Cincinnati 
and not in Hoboken. But until he did, he was doomed to hopelessly bumble around, not recognizing where he was or what he was doing. Likewise, as we see what Peter has to say about our situation, you may find it disconcerting to realize that you have been mistaken about where you are. You live in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. And the church is going to hopelessly bumble around until she knows it. May we pray together. Our Father, uh, we, we have been lulled by a, a world that has at times complied with the church's suggestion that it should look this way or that. But the world is never anything but the world. Open our eyes to that fact. Help us to know where we live to know who we are and therefore how to live. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.